Let us pray. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord, amen. The first reading is taken from Jonah chapter three, reading from verses one to 10. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The second reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, reading from verses 8 to 13. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. This is the word of the Lord. 
you. Good morning. My name's Colin. I'm married to Louise. We both help out with the student work here at Cornerstone. If you're a new student and uh, we don't know you, please say hi. We'd love to meet you. And if you're not part of our home group system, it's a little plug for that. Um, there are, our home groups are wonderful. Please talk to us about that as well. So en end of plug for home groups. Um, this is Kalu Ren, Boromir, and one of my favorite books, Crime and Punishment. What um, do these have in common? I'm going to tell you. They're all, um, they all feature key characters in whom there is a redemption. I love a good redemption story. Um, one of my favorites is from a film called Gran Torino. Um, it's a film starring Clint Eastwood, and he plays a man who is a veteran of a, the Korean War. Um, he's a true American. He's got the stars and stripes in his garden. Um, he always buys American, and he has in his garage uh, a car called a Gran Torino. Has anyone seen the film? Yeah, good, good. Fantastic film. They recommend it. Gran Torino is a symbol of um, when America, America made things which were great, uh, and they worked, and this car was a thing of beauty. Um, and so the part of it is that he, uh, he, he sees America uh, through the eyes of how it used to be. And with dismay, the opening scenes watch him look at his street filling up with African-Americans and Latinos and Koreans. Um, and we see him muttering racist things from time to time. Um, then he, get, he begins to get to know one of the Korean families. And the relationship with one of the daughters, the teenage daughters in particular, begins to soften his heart. And reluctantly, as he gets to know them, he gets fond of them. And he begins to see the prejudice that they see every single day. Uh, and I'm not going to spoil it, but at the end of the film, there's a beautiful change takes place in this man. Uh, and his posture towards this family uh, changes from spiteful resentment to genuinely something different, uh, something about protecting them. It's a wonderful climax. In contrast, um, when thinking about change, our culture can sometimes tell a different story about change, particularly in self-help books. And I'm not here to trash self-help. It's really helpful at times, but um, this is the second uh, bestseller on Amazon just now. It's a book called Atomic Habits, and it's about making little tweaks to your life which can result in a big change further down the line. But there's a difference between these two different types of change that I've introduced. Um, books like this all present ways in which we decide what we want to change, um, and we're in control of the process. Gran Torino and Raskolnikov from Pride and Prejudice and Boromir, they're different because change is something which happens to them. And I think that's what repentance is all about. Repentance is about change that happens to us. We, almost in spite of ourselves, we don't have a control over the process and where it's going. I think this kind of change is called repentance. And in Jonah, repentance is one of the big themes, or turning is a big theme in the book of Jonah. So previously we've looked at the turning of the sailors, where obviously there's the turning of Jonah himself, and we're going to look as well today about the turning of the Ninevites, who are the fierce enemies of the people of God. Um, they were a vicious people, notorious for their cruelty, and if there was a group of people that would show remorse for their actions or any inclination to change, it wouldn't be them. And you can see and sense from Jonah's words in this book how much he loathes them and how much he wants them to be crushed and destroyed and to be overturned. And yet, this is what we read 
In Jonah, in verse 3, he goes to preach in Nineveh. It's a, it's a city that has a three-day span. It takes three days from walk from one end to the next. And yet, he gets one day in. I think that can mean one of two things. Either one, that Jonah is so disgusted with the Ninevites, that's all he can bear to do is get a day in. Or, and perhaps, it means that he only needed to get one day in before he sees something begin to happen. Uh, he sees change. And it's interesting what Jonah's message is. We've talked about this in previous weeks. 40 days and you will be overthrown, Nineveh. 40 more days. And this word for overthrown is an interesting word because it can mean one of two things. There's probably a wordplay going on here which Jonah's using. It can either mean overturned as in destruction, as in it's used for Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament when those two wicked cities were overthrown and judged by God. But it can also mean to be turned as in to change your heart and your direction. It's basically saying, be about turned or be overturned. And that's what we see. Either way, Nineveh is about to experience a turning. It reminded me of a friend that I had when I was at university in Edinburgh. Um, and he, uh, he was wonderfully funny and he was great fun to be around, um, but he was extremely arrogant and he was extremely sarcastic. Um, and he treated other people with contempt from time to time. He would come to Bible study, he was a Christian, and he would just lounge back. And um, anything that was kind of taught from the Bible, he would just shrug. Anything that um, anyone else said, he would just kind of almost sneer at them. Um, he had an attitude problem. And it got to the point where when the leader of his small group had to take him aside, and he said this, my friend, you need to humble yourself, or God's gonna humble you. What did he do? Well, he shrugged, and he sneered. <laughs> And he went away for a few years. And interestingly, um, over those two or three years he was away, he, came, uh, he went through some personal issues where he was genuinely broken and his confidence was shattered. And he came back two or three years later and he said to this leader, do you know what, you were right. God has humbled me. Um, he was turned. Well, it's interesting to see the reaction of the Ninevites to Jonah as we go on here. In verse 5, we see that there's an about turn. Um, the Ninevites believed there was a turning there. And it's interesting to note that they didn't believe Jonah, just in the same way that my friend didn't believe uh, the leader. It came to the point where he actually believed God. It was something that he felt God was saying. So he turned because of a word from God's response to something that God was doing and saying. And we get an insight into how repentance works from the two examples of my friend and what happens to the Ninevites here. Both of them got to the point where even though technically they had a choice, they realized they had no choice but to change and to turn. The options were so crystal clear it was a no-brainer. It's a bit like this. If I keep living in this way, it's going to result in death and ministry. But if I can die to this behavior, then it makes a new life possible. You may think death, that's quite a strong way of describing repentance, but we look in Jonah in verses 6 to 9, um, we see that there's a fast, we see that they, um, uh, they urge, uh, to, there's three things that repeat, I'm going to highlight them here. It's the mention of the word sackcloth. What is sackcloth? Well, sackcloth was often a garment that was put on people, and they still see it in the ancient Near East, um, 
and it was part of the process of mourning or grieving, something that was deeply associated with death. And wh why, why is this important? Well, it's almost the same as the Ninevites saying, if I continue going in this way, I recognize and I grieve where it's heading, the trajectory of it, it's gonna lead to a death. And it's almost this repentant, this remorseful crying out and saying, I don't want to die. I want new life. So they cry out to God. Um, interesting, C.S. Lewis puts this really well, unpacks this even further. And he talks about this old woman who's grumbling in his book, The Great Divorce. And this is what he says. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But, if you're, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it and yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer then there'll be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. <clears throat> in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. It has a trajectory. It's going somewhere. It's the seeds of something. The Puritan theologian, a man called John Owen, says this, sin always aims at the outmost, Every time it rises up to, to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery, if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought or unbelief, thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. It's like the grave that is never satisfied. Again, trajectory. Repentance is to really see and experience the trajectory of our attitude. It's an unmasking of the reality of sin. That's what repentance does. But it's not just that. It's got a, another life after it. I think it's to, be, to get to that point, but then it's to be so sickened and exhausted by these things that we want to leave them and to choose a new way, another way, to die to them and to live into something new. And it's a different kind of change than we have spoken about with self-help books. Um, it's why we've become so cynical, I think, about things that are happening in our culture. For example, politicians um, or inquiries that investigate things and make mistakes. What's the, what do they always come out with? Lessons have been learned. It's almost like a trope. It's almost as if it's, it's trite. And we are left thinking, is there any real remorse for this? Is there any real turning? Is there any sense that this can never, ever happen again? It's not even an option. We have died to that attitude. I used to work in addiction support. Um, and one commonly held belief amongst people in addiction services, and I know this is controversial, is that, well, is now, is that people need to hit rock bottom until, uh, before they can begin genuine recovery. Um, and the reality for many people is that they have to reach a moment of clarity or a place where things have got so bad um, that they're face to face with their behavior and they need to do something new. Um, for some people, they think they can entertain a life where they can um, take it or leave it. Um, years and years, people on the edge of chaos, but just functioning enough to be able to withdraw and convince themselves that they're in control of this behavior or this substance rather than it being in control of them. But often what happens is it's a cataclysmic event where they're brought face to face with their powerlessness over the substance. Uh, and they're faced with a stark choice. Either I stop doing this or I just I continue in its death for me. 
for many people, that's, that's the reality. It's a matter of life and death. And I think that's what Jonah says, that repentance really is a matter of life and death. Um, it's a similar experience to that which we read in other parts of the Bible, and I, it, particularly in the prophets, one of the key refrains in the prophets is the word repent, turn, turn back to me. An example of this is in Jonah chapter 2, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 2, and it says this, has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they're not gods at all? But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God's appealing to them and saying to them, you think you can find living water apart from me? Well, it's a delusion. It's a quest for life that's doomed. And the Bible has a name for something that we pursue thinking we're going to get life from it. It's the word idolatry. It's a false worship. And it's interesting that earlier on in Jonah, in chapter 2, verse 8, some people think this is the key verse in the whole of Jonah. I'm not sure. It's, it's this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Or in an older version, they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's what idolatry does. And it's interesting the word turn is here as well. It's a different word from Jonah, but it's the same sense, to abandon or to forsake. And it tells about an, an, an irony of sin and the irony of idolatry or the concept. is Idols promise something that are infinitely valuable, but they end up being worthless. Um, they're counterfeit. They claim to give us life, but they end up completely consuming our lives. It's like a shortcut that never gets us there. That's what idolatry is like, a promise of something you just can't deliver. And that's why the prophets cry out to us on behalf of God, turn, the way that you're going is not leading to life, it's leading to death. Turn away from false worship so that you might live. Well, the good news of the scriptures, the Bible, and the good news of Jonah is about a God who is a life giver, a real life giver, for whom even death bears the seeds of new life. Genesis, right at the start, it tells us the story of death coming to humanity through the choices of Adam and Eve, and we see the warnings of God in these two verses here. But almost immediately, the good news is that God doesn't follow through immediately on this idea, this concept of death. Um, he hints that there's something better that's going to prevail. The crushing of the serpent, um, is the serpent will bruise, our, will bruise Eve's heel, or the offspring of, offspring of Eve, but we'll strike his head. Um, and almost immediately after the curse is given, which brings death, God, uh, Adam turns to his wife and names her Eve. And what does Eve mean? It means life giver. Again, there's hints here that death is not the defining mark or trait in this story. Actually, life is. And this is who God is. And this is who God, this is what God does in scripture. The final word is not death. It's life. And we see that in the trajectory of the Bible. If you've ever seen this, it's called the tick diagram. It's a helpful overview of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. But the fall is a journey into death because of what Adam and Eve did. It's a descent into death. But almost from Genesis 3 onwards, the trajectory is towards life. The prophets and the whole rest of the scripture say this. Look to the God who is the life bringer. That's who we're dealing with here. And although death is part of the experience of the human being, and it's a dreadful thing, 
it's not the defining mark of history. And the Bible's a creation to new creation. It's a history book. It tells about the history of humanity and the cosmos. And it's saying that history is marked by life and not death. God is the God of the living. And history turns on the very fact, the cross is in the middle there, that God joined himself to our human life. In fact, he joined himself to our life and took it to the, the end of its trajectory, to death itself. But he didn't stay there. He took our life into death and he raises our life with him into new life. That is the gospel. He took our human life through death. And that's the basis of our faith. That's what baptism means. It means this, this symbol of going into the water and coming up again. It's a symbol of our life being reborn, dying and being reborn with God's life. And that's the normal life of God's people. That's what me, being a Christian, that's what following God means every single day to experience life emerging from death. That's what we are called to. We are not called to death. And it looks like this every day. God bring us to the point where our attitudes and our behaviors take us to the trajectory of death and they're exposed. The disordered loves of our hearts, the attempts to find life by digging our own cisterns and then coming back to God, coming to our senses and coming to the God who will bring us life. So how do we begin to move from death to life and every single day? How do we begin to enter that process? And I think, I think the answer is that we ask God or we engage with God. We ask God to show us where we need to experience that change to show us our sins and our idols and to receive the streams of life that come from Jesus. And there's a simple exercise that could help us here and it's to ask the question, what takes us to despair? What's the thing in our lives which, which repeatedly takes us to despair? We all have them. And this is interesting, this is the, <clears throat> a painting um, which depicts Jonah finally in chapter four. And the final scene of Jonah is absolutely fascinating because we see Jonah has got to the point of despair. <clears throat> Why? He's, he's on his knees complaining to God saying, you didn't crush these Ninevites. You didn't kill them. You've given them life instead. I knew you would do this. And then he goes to the point of saying, so it's better for me to live, to die than to live. That's where Jonah is. He's gone back on that death trajectory, which is interesting because that's, that's something, a familiar pattern for him earlier on in Jonah. And some commentators ask, was Jonah's repentance genuine earlier on, we don't know, but all we, we still know for sure that he is sunk into despair. So what's he still clinging to? What does he, what's God really asking him to die to? <clears throat> well, think God's response to Jonah shed some light in this. And this is what he says, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there's more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Interesting, he talks about the Ninevites, but also the animals there. I reckon Jonah has set his heart on a God who is going to bring death to Ninevites. And for him, that's where he is going to, he thinks he'll experience life, is in the destruction of his enemies. He clings to the idea of a false God who will not show mercy or life, but only death. And we'll come back to this. That's Jonah. What about us? What, where do we despair? Well, this is, for me, one of my besetting sins, one of the things that comes back again and again, and there are many, um, is the fact that I can sulk and withdraw. And I don't know, you might think that's a funny thing to bring up, but if any of you live with or you're married to someone who sulks, any other sulkers here? Withdrawers? Yeah, there's always a few. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something you can laugh at, but um, it can be a miserable thing to live with, and I realize what it does to my family. 
Um, it happens when someone's unfairly critical of me um, or they're dismissive, and I just kind of turn in on myself. Feels like I've experienced the worst injustice that there is, and I refuse to engage from that point. Yes. Um, so what, what am I clinging to? What's, my, what this, what's the cistern that I'm digging for myself there? Well, for me, it's the trap of thinking that in order for me to really feel alive, I need to be respected and valued. I need to be seen as important. Then I'll feel like my life really counts. And even the kind of mundane day-to-day things, that's what I'm internalizing. I need that respect. I need that to feel important. Now, it's good to be respected, um, and it's not nice to be disrespected, but my reaction goes way beyond the kind of natural grief of that. It's like an idol. It's clinging to something. And in the case of, my, of me, it's being respected, seeing that as a source of life, a false source of life. But here's the question. Does my sulking bring life, or does it take life away? And unquestionably for me, it takes life. It drains life for me and my family. So what would it mean for God to expose it as a death bringer so that I can begin to live a new life for him? Well, I think the reality is this. I need to turn or to be turned. It's a bit like with my friend earlier on. Um, Either I try to ignore what God's niggling away or showing me in my heart, and I stick my head in the sand and it'll come round again and again until I finally learn the lesson and it becomes a death to me and my family. Or... I can heed what God's saying, how he's gently pressing me. And it means I slow down and I humbly begin to think about my life before him. And I allow God to bring home the nature of my withdrawing. Allow me to experience its consequences and to see what it does to those around me. It it needs to become a death to me. And this is easier said than done, as I'm sure you can imagine. I'm learning this. But then there's the offer of life. It's not just the death for death. God doesn't just lead us into death. And it begins the fresh realization of who the God is that we're dealing with. And he's completely different from the God that I would make, a bit like Jonah, the God that Jonah wants. He doesn't play by my rules, thankfully. The reality is that he never deals with my sin by withdrawing from me or sulking or turning away. In Jesus, God comes close. He doesn't turn away. Even in my destructive mindset, He holds me close. And that's the beauty of the God that we worship. And when I experience that, it creates such a tension between my withdrawing and his closeness um, that it means that it it makes it almost impossible for me to continue living in that pattern uh, over and over again. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Um, That's the Holy Spirit's work in the life of us as followers of Jesus, bringing to death that which is death in us. And it's a painful process, but just like God's work in creation, in Christ, the coming through death somehow gives me something more beautiful than I would have experienced otherwise, and I become a life giver to other people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I think the picture of repentance in Jonah is a really beautiful thing, and it's really helpful for us. And you've got two pictures. There's one of the Ninevites and the sailors, which have this life-to-death experience. It's instant It happens uh, very quickly, and sometimes that's exactly what we need. We're given a revelation of what's at stake. But I think more normally it's the picture of Jonah himself, where he experiences something, and then he has to come back again. And that's what God's like. He's so patient, and that's what we're like. It takes a long time for us to learn our lesson. We have to come back to the same place several times, almost sometimes in different forms, before we're able to learn the, the death of what we're doing, our attitudes, 
and how good we have this life-giving God. And as I finish, um, I think there's two ironies that Jonah can't see, and I think it's exactly the same for us. The first is Jonah's picture of God and our picture of God. He's seeking life in a false God, a God who brings death, a God he thinks will bring life on his terms. But as we've seen and as Jonah's finding out, God's not a death bringer. Uh, He's not that God. He's a life giver. The second thing which I think is helpful for us is to see that Jonah has this overwhelming desire to see the death of his enemies. But that can't bring life. The irony is that it's consuming him. It's a slow death to him for himself. And it's exactly the same for us. uh, Our sin can be a slow death to us. And we see at the end of Jonah this massive question mark. In the English translation, is a question mark anyway. Um, And it's a question that's left hanging. And I wonder if God's asking Jonah this. Jonah, what do you really want to be part of, life or death? Which, Which do you want to be part of? I think it's the same for us. I think he looks at me and you, and we look at Jonah, and we look at the cross, and we're given the same question. What do you really want, life or death? to be a life bringer? Do we want to continue to live in our own plans, to the things that we think will bring us life, blind to where it leads ourselves and others? Or are we ready to turn to God and ask the Holy Spirit, help me to see what needs to die so that you can begin to live, and in living, that I can become a life giver just like you? Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to take us into death, but not to keep us there but to take us into life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us now. Bring us to death and bring us into life. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd show us where we need to change so that life might prevail and it might overflow to many people, those around us and far beyond. We ask it in your name. Amen.